From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The profanitary warbler is a small songbird of the New World warbler family. For years, uh, the Jackson Audubon Society has maintained nesting box trails for these birds. They can be seen around Lafleur's Bluff and the Fanny Cook Natural Area. Today, we've got birding enthusiast Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society. He's going to talk about the birds and their migration to these nesting sites. Also, as always, Dr. Major's here ready for pet questions, and Libby likes to help with your recent brushes with nature. To join our conversation, just give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Hope that you're doing well this morning. Yes, very well. Thanks. A couple of things to get to, but first, I think you told me you've got a, a yellow jacket story to share. Oh, I do have another yellow jacket story, and I'll, I can post a picture later. But uh, since I kind of had problems with yellow jackets earlier and had a couple of stings and a swollen face and some problems, but um, I was walking a couple of days ago and found something that I've read about but had never seen in person, and it was the female, uh, the queen, actually a, <clears throat> a young queen. And uh, when the, this time of year in the fall, the, um, the hives of um, yellow jackets will raise queens and males. You know, there are usually not very many males in a, in a hive, uh, except at this one time of year. Well, there are none in the hive until this time of year. So the um, the unmated queen is, uh, all queens, they're about twice as big as a regular yellow jacket. And maybe wouldn't be so noticeable except that she was surrounded by and lovingly enclosed by five males who were, you know, at least half the size of her, I guess. And um, But it was, a, you know, a little ball there on the ground and uh, getting ready for next year, of course. So what they'll do, the males, that's their one purpose in life. And they were uh, seemed very ardent and very determined to get that purpose accomplished. And uh, then they'll all die. And the whole, die, the whole hive will die here as it gets colder in the next few days. But this young queen who's been mated will uh, find a place to overwinter and you know hopefully for her I guess that she'll find a successful place to stay the winter it might be back down remember yellow jackets are the one that loves to nest in the ground Uh, rotten stump holes or even a mouse burrow anything like that they're going to find and live in so she'll find something like that or under you know a, a piece of bark um, I'm sure many of the queens don't make it through the winter, but, you know, if, if my little queen makes it, then uh, she'll come out next year, next spring, and uh, start her own hive. And she'll, uh, you know, they chew up wood and make paper, but she'll do it underground somewhere. They have a paper nest, too, the um, yellow jackets do, but it's underground in a little cavity and lay 30 
50, you know, a few eggs, and she'll tend those, and she'll forage, and she'll feed those larvae and raise them up, and then they'll be her first worker bees. They're females, all females. They'll be her first worker bees, and then um, she'll never leave the nest again. It was like that's her one hurrah for a month or so. She uh, is on her own raising that little nest, and then from there on, she and they, you know, live about a year, so she'll keep going. But anyway, I was glad to see her in that stage, and it was kind of fun, and I, I realized that they meant me no harm at all when they stung my face. <laughs> <laughs> so were the males competing for or were all involved in the process? They were, they were all involved. And um, now, you know, from their angle, it might be competition. I don't know. But they say, um, in fact, there's one guy in this, I can't remember his name now, but I've read a couple things about what he's done. But he's gotten very interested in yellow jackets and just really taken it to a level. And he does genetics work on them. So he does paternity tests, actually, to find out about how many different fathers might be in a hive. And he he at first thought that it might even find that worker bees might not uh, take care of larvae that that were not genetically connected to them. But what he finds is that it's a very egalitarian kind of thing in that hive, and the most successful hives seem to be the ones that, uh, where the queen has multiple partners. So that's, um, anyway, I thought that was interesting that they that somebody had gone to the trouble to, to do that much work. And um, he's got some grad students that are interested in it and working with him, too. So they run the genetics to such an extent that they can actually tell who is related in a hive. And a hive will take care of a larva, the worker bees will, even if it was a male that was not from that hive. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got an interesting picture this morning. And Java, I think you've got the email that uh, that went along with it. Uh, yeah, we got an email. Uh, actually, it was came through yesterday afternoon. I thought it was our friend Joe McGee, but it's just another Joe. <laughs> and Joe said, uh, quite surprised to see this frog in the backyard. It was about an inch and a half long. Uh, did not see a matching picture online, so he was sending it to us to see if we could identify. Thank you for an excellent show. And it's a pink frog. Yeah, and it, but it doesn't have the pink eye. I noticed, and we'll send it to Joe McGee. How about that? And yeah. maybe a couple of other folks, and uh, check it out. It, it just looking at body shape, it looks like a tree frog. And you know, we've got what four or five varieties of tree frogs, species of tree frogs. So this could be some kind of a color morph. Hmm. You know, one that's that doesn't have. I don't know how that works in. And frogs, yeah, because but I know we see albino snakes and hmm. Terry Vandervender's coming on in a few weeks. We'll have to talk to him a little bit more about that too. But but without the pink eye, it's not a true albino. No, it's got to have the pink eye because this one does have some melanin in its body because it's got that that dark eye. So, um, but it could it could lack all other melanin for some reason in its skin. But yeah, as you suggested, Thanks Libby, we picture. will uh, yeah. we'll forward that to our buddy Joe McGee, and he'll probably be able to give us a little more insight into that as well. Uh, we got Dr. Major on the phone as usual. So good morning, Dr. Major. Hope you're doing well this morning. Doing good, thank you. Appreciate it. 
So, you know, a lot of times uh, we talk about these things each year, but it's always good to remind folks uh, of pet owners of, of things like this. Thanksgiving's coming up. A lot of families will be together for the first time probably in a couple of years. Uh, so pets, especially dogs, maybe might not be usual uh, used to a big crowd of people they're not familiar with. What are some tips to make sure that uh, the holiday visitors and the pets uh, get along during during the holiday season? Yeah, that's a really good question. But one of the one of the things is that it depends on depends on the dog and the socialization level that it is. A lot of dogs love company; they love to uh, interact with uh, guests. On the other hand, some dogs want to go back to the back room and hide. Uh, one of the biggest problems that we see uh, associated with the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, would be inappropriate uh, sharing of food. Uh, items and this sort of thing, whereas uh, a lot of times people think it's great to be able to share share their food with a, a dog. Uh, it can cause some problems, GI problems, and it can be very serious at times. Yeah, another thing I would think is um, if you're inviting folks and you know your dog acts a certain way, maybe is overly friendly, is, is kind of skittish, to let the, the visitors know in advance, you know, don't don't be too aggressive with the dog, that sort of thing. So let, let your visitors know what your the personality of your pet, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I was talking about, socialization. Mm-hmm. A lot of dogs do perfectly well uh, with guests, others. They want to jump up on them. They want to uh, lick them, you know, and just be a nuisance almost, whereas a well-trained dog knows its limitations, I guess, and you need to work with that uh, in socialization of of these dogs. Cats, usually not as much of a problem. Uh, I've noticed that uh, some cats are very perceptive. One of the things that they will do, which you may have noticed, They'll go to the person that doesn't like cats a lot of times. Uh, it's like a test almost, as opposed to uh, going to somebody that really likes cats. I've observed that over the years from my observation. And uh, to me, the way cats act, if, if they're a lap cat, they'll have no issue about jumping on, on anybody's lap and, and settling in. Because it's funny to me, my cat walking over me and that sort of thing, that had never seemed to bother him. So I, I would think that if it's a, a friendly cat, then they might hop up on anybody's lap and try to take a nap. Right. And and some people really, though, in, in reality, don't like that idea of that close of a contact with a cat. So you have to be very careful uh, with your your pets during this time. And, uh, you know, we get into the New Year's then with fireworks and and all of that. And some of our pets really need some special care. Uh, I realize that we are ways away from New Year's, but uh, fireworks can cause some issues uh, with some of the dogs especially. uh, And you need to prepare for that. Uh, what about uh, kind of trying to stick to your routine as much as you can? Again, visitors coming, it's the holiday, and so things won't be exactly the same, but is it best to try to maybe keep the routine as much as you can to kind of help our, our pets uh, stay calm? You know, I think it's a good point. Uh, a lot of the times uh, we forget about our pets. We've got uh, maybe with a big crowd or something like that. But uh, I would say stick to your usual routine as best as possible, Yes. All right, very good. It's time for the first break of the hour. When we get back, we'll begin talking about the prothonotary warbler and other birds with our guest, birding enthusiast from the Jackson Audubon Society, Charlie Pfeiffer. So stay tuned. Call with questions and comments. The phone number, it's 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 
672-7464. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. We're back on Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Charlie Pfeiffer. If you want to join our conversation with questions and comments, the phone number is one mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Charlie, our, our producer, Java Chapman, looked up. You joined us last year in July to talk about prothonotary warblers. If you would start out by reminding us a little bit about your background. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, well, I'm a zookeeper by profession, uh, but I'm also on the board of the Louisiana Wildlife Federation, the Orleans Sierra Club, and most importantly for today, Jackson Audubon, where our signature program is the Prothonotary Warbler Nest Box Project. Uh, what got you interested in birding? Um, I've always been interested in birds and animals since I was a little kid, and I, I think probably most of us uh, have been the same. You know, um, what, as we grew up, we experienced uh, animals and birds and came to love them and um, went on from there. I'm a big a fan of zoos, and you mentioned you're a zookeeper. Uh, where, wh- what zoo do you are, do you work with? A Jackson Zoo. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. all right. Give us an update on that. We know that the you know there's been some issues, and and what's the latest on on maybe a new location or reopening? Or I guess it is open, but get, just give us an update on on the Jackson Zoo. Well, we're open four days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the COVID, we were sort of uh, put behind a little bit. Um. Uh, there had been a suggestion in the past about moving the zoo, uh, uh, which never eventually happened. So we're in the same location, carrying on. Uh, we hope people will come out and see us. We're there four days a week and support the zoo. What Do you have a uh, – this might be a difficult question to answer. I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite animal at the zoo or maybe a signature animal at the zoo? What would you say? Well, of course, I'm a bird person. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I've also come to, to enjoy the cougars and otters that I take care of. All right. I work with a little bit of everything. Very good. Um, before we get into uh, bird talk, we've got a question on the line, so let's uh, invite Debbie from Sandy Hook into the conversation. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Oh, well, thank you for taking my call. I, this is for uh, Dr. Major. I was curious to know... There's a stray that came um, around a gentleman's business, a mechanic shop. She's been there over a year. She won't let you touch her. She's harmless. The SPCA cannot catch her. Uh, several local people come every day and feed her. It it's kind of gives some of them, I believe, something to do. But anyway, now it's gotten to where every time the owner shuts the doors down, and gets in his vehicle to leave, 
the dog follows him. And I don't care if it's a half a mile down the road, the dog is still in pursuit. He's tried putting her in the shop. That worked for a while, and then someone would come out later and let her back out. But my point is now she won't even get in the shop because she knows that routine. What can be done to make this dog quit following him? Any thoughts, Dr. Major? Yes, uh, it's a difficult, difficult situation as far as uh, this dog is concerned. I suppose it's going to be very, very hard not to have her trying to follow follow the storekeeper uh, in his truck or car when he leaves. Uh, certainly, uh, there are people that could trap this dog. I really believe that can be done. Um, she needs to be spayed if she's not fixed, and she needs to have shots. If she's going to be allowed to stay, you know, like she is, uh, I really don't have a good uh, uh, answer to keeping her from following this guy, uh, following the storekeeper. Uh, but she does need to be uh, uh, taken care of as far as any vaccinations, and if she's not been spayed, she needs to be spayed. Um, I would welcome any listeners to give us some ideas, but it's going to be difficult to stop her. She's bonded with this person, apparently, and she wants to be right there with him, but she doesn't really want him to, I guess, catch her and take her, take her in. Uh, Debbie, That's is there correct. any animal control uh, in in the area? I'm yes, talking. sir. They they have come on several occasions to catch her, and she runs. Or, I mean, they cannot catch her. They they, and like I said, it makes it bad. These other people are feeding her. They come and bring her food. One gentleman brings her a rotisserie chicken every single day. <laughs> And they're do-gooders, but they're really making it harder. Right, right. I understand. Uh, There are large, live, humane traps. Uh, They would start feeding her uh, close to that and then move the food in. I believe she could be trapped and uh, could be uh, checked over. I guess the question is, do you leave her like she is? She survived for over a year that we know of. Uh, I would say that it'd be difficult probably to socialize her uh, with a family or this sort of thing, but uh, I believe that she could actually be coaxed into a trap at some point. And these are very humane, and uh, I would say that would be my way to go trying to catch her. All right, uh, Debbie, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Major or a question for our guest, Charlie Pfeiffer, call us today at one eight seven seven mpb ring Our phone number is one 7464 You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Charlie, the Profanitary Warbler, it's a bit of an unusual name. Do you know anything about the, the origin of the name? Well, the, the name came from the uh, prothonotaries, uh, clerks in the Catholic Church who wore yellow robes. And then the birds are yellow as well? That's right. Uh, simply put, it's probably one of the most drop-dead gorgeous birds we have in North America. Uh, they breed in eastern U.S., uh, a very small population. 
in Canada where they're considered endangered. 99% are in the eastern U.S. and very much concentrated in the southern part of the U.S. Uh, but they're, they're a lemon yellow with blue-gray wings. Females are a little more subdued in color, but still nice birds. Uh, and they're very small, five inches long, uh, less than half an ounce. Uh, they uh, entirely depend on nest cavities, which why they take to nest boxes so easily. But they must must either have natural tree cavities or nest boxes. Yeah, Libby just showed me a picture, and you're right that that yellow is quite striking, and I like the way it it contrasts with the color of the wings too. I think it almost makes the yellow stand out a little bit more. Right. Yes. So uh, that thing I was curious about is, is warbler. Um, are are these birds? Does their vocalization sound anything like something that's warbling? <laughs> is that how we got that part of the name? <laughs> well, there's a variety of wood warblers. Uh, this particular warbler makes a sweet, sweet, sweet kind of a call. And I'm not good at imitating birds, so I won't <laughs> try to do it too much. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if you would call that a, a, a warble, but uh, yeah. That's their call. Okay. Um, and are, is the prothonotary warbler a species of conservation? Yes, uh, very much so. Well, since 1966, uh, they've had a 40% drop in population. Uh, Do we know why? Uh, habitat loss, that sort of thing? Uh, primarily habitat, mm-hmm. habitat, uh, which is the core problem with most species that are in da- uh, Well, these aren't endangered species, a species of conservation concern. But uh, the primary conservation problem today is habitat loss across the board. So you mentioned, I think, that they're they're cavity, uh, they cavity nesters, is that the the proper term? That's right. And so that means they like to nest in cavities, I guess. (laughs) Right, tree cavities, natural tree cavities, and uh, nest boxes, which makes it easy to use nest boxes on our trail. Uh, you know, any kind of a knot hole in a tree, something like that, they really like to, to get in. Um, and close to water, and closer to water, the better. Right. Basically a habitat specialist. They, they really like swampy forest, but some kind of combination of trees and water. Would they build what we would consider maybe, I think when most people think of nests, they think of, you know, a bunch of straw in a circle, kind of that sort of thing. Is there a nest in the cavity, or is the cavity basically the nest? Uh, they bring nesting material into the cavity and, and form a cup. Um, so you mentioned uh, the the project that, that's been involved with the Jackson Audubon Society. If you would, uh, give us a little bit about the origins of that and, and tell us what the, the goal is. Well, in the year t- 2000, the, the project was first initiated by Jackson Audubon. Uh, more recently, in 2019, we we decided to try to document just how much uh, breeding was going on and the success of the nest boxes, which uh, it's looking like is pretty successful. Uh, This past uh, year, well, this year, 2021, 14 out of 15 boxes have had at least some kind of activity, sometimes involving birds double clutching, sometimes lesser activity. So um, you said it was kind of easy to do that. Uh, describe the, the nesting box. How, you know, does it have to be a certain height off the ground? Is there a better spot to put them? How big is it? That kind of thing. Well, our boxes are on poles, and they're set in the water, which they really like. Uh, 
size, roughly five by five on the bottom, six inches up. Uh, nest holes, about a, one and a quarter inch or one and a, one eighth inch, depending on who you, you like. We use one and a quarter. That keeps out uh, other, many other birds. Uh, and at, uh, at LaFleur's Bluff State Park, we have a lot of bluebirds. And uh, for, for boxes any, of any whole size bigger than that and natural cavities, they must be a, they are and will be a big, cav, a big uh, competitor for, with prothonotary warblers. But if you keep it to an inch and a quarter, bluebirds can't get in and other birds, cowbirds, and so forth. And you you mentioned that the obviously they're they're checked uh, I guess on a regular basis. Talk a little bit about that. And you were mentioning that this last check that seemed to be fairly successful. Right. Uh, well, we we check once a week. Uh, we may move. Uh, we may possibly move to to more twice a week, which is the ideal amount. But right now it's it's once a once a week. Uh, we are very careful not to touch any of the chicks, and also we uh, take into account how close they are to fledging, leaving the nest, because if, if you come in and open the box a day or two or, or so before they're ready to go, you can force them out too quickly. So there's a lot of consideration that goes into it. And is it primarily then tracking the population of the birds? Or, I mean, are there other factors that you're looking for when you check the boxes? Well, we're trying to get some idea of productivity and how successful the boxes are. And, and uh, we're finding out that they're very well used. All right, time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest today, Charlie Pfeiffer of the Jackson Audubon Society. Also, we've got a call on the line for Dr. Major. Uh, if you want to join the show, you can call in with questions and comments. Our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this, so stay tuned. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and our guest today is Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. That way you can listen to all of the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. To join the conversation this morning, it's simple. Just give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to the phone lines we go with another question for Dr. Major. So we say good morning to Catherine in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. 
Well, I have a, a great Pyrenees. She's about seven months old. And um, she's a good dog, but recently we put an area rug down in our living room, and she has taken to kind of chewing on the ends, shaking the rug around. And I just wondered if you guys have any tips or tactics to share to kind of get her to stop. Gosh, that's a universal question just about. It's a great question. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the puppies, she's still a puppy, will do a fair amount of destructive chewing. Uh, one of the things that you can do is remove the source. Uh, if you can take that rug away for a while, uh, try to occupy her with other things. Uh, they're excellent uh, chew toys. I know I had a large dog that uh, would literally tear up a, a toy, so we went online and found some dogs that are dog toys that are basically indestructible, which they like to chew on. So that might be a, a big help. It's very difficult at this age, though, to stop this chewing uh, principle. And uh, I, I would say remove the rug right now if you want to maintain it and not have her tear it up. Yeah, she does. She has a lot of different cho- uh, chew toys. Uh, but um, she knows what she can and can't get into, and it, it seems like when she's wanting more attention, that's when she really goes over there and gets on the rug. Right. Well, as best possible, try to distract her uh, when she does that. There are some things that can be sprayed on the rug, which may may help in some cases. One of them is called bitter apple. Uh, it's uh, It should not stain the rug or anything like that. But you can check first to be sure about the staining capability of any of those. But some things will deter the chewing, and that's one of them that helps in some cases. Bitter apple. Okay. All right. Thanks. Well, thank you. Thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society and learning more about the prothonotary warbler. Um, so, Charlie, I'm not sure if I asked you, but uh, how many boxes, the nesting boxes, are in the, the Jackson area? Well, we have 15 at LaFleur's Bluff State Park. Uh, well, that's the, the, the part of the project that we actually check. And then we put out some extras for just the birds, as we call it, where we don't check all the time. Um, you mentioned that sometimes uh, they kind of have to fight off uh, other birds uh, for t- for territory. Are are the prothonotaries very uh, protective of their territory? Uh, certainly between each other, but if the birds are bigger than them, then then there's not really not much of a fight. They're so, smart then. They know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the reason for the one and a quarter inch nest holes. Mm-hmm. Um, are you ever looking for volunteers if someone wanted to help out the Audubon Society and maybe uh, create some uh, nesting boxes? Is that something that you'd be interested in? And, and how would someone try to help get involved? Uh, yes, we would. They could contact Jackson Audubon. Uh, we have a website, mm-hmm. which could be easily Googled. Um, and always looking for people to get involved. So, yes, joining the prothonotary team or build boxes. You know, another way, of course, to help prothonotaries, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen them around their property. If um, you have seen prothonotary warblers on your site, on your land, uh, it'd be a good idea to put up one of these nesting boxes. And the uh, the plans are online and in a couple books, too. I've seen them. So um, it's not hard to do. And if you see prothonotaries around, there's a really good chance that you will get them to come in your box. We 
we've put up several boxes for them and have them every year. They're not a shy bird, which is kind of uh, intriguing, I guess, for something that is uh, considered rare. If you've got them, you usually know you've got them because they're, they're not shy. Like I posted a picture. Uh, we were sitting outside. One came right down by Paul, and I was able to get a good picture of him with his mouth open just singing right to Paul. We, <laughs> Paul says he was telling me to go away, and I said, no, I think he was just saying hello because he didn't look threatening at all. But uh, they're, um, I can be laying in the hammock on the front porch, and they'll come and go to their nest and feed the babies. So they're they pretty much can tolerate people, which to me indicates it's a species that we should be able to able to keep around. You know, surely they're they're given hundred percent to the cause themselves. If we'll just help them out a little bit by uh, giving them some nesting sites, they'll um, reward you with a lot of viewing pleasure. <laughs> And again, that that, that picture that Libby showed me, they, they really are striking birds, and uh, that 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 vibrant yellow color is is really something. The very first name they were given, and I, I still prefer it. They were called golden swamp warblers in the the oldest book. So um, I think that's a good name because rather than we, you know, we all call them a yellow bird, and there are a lot of yellow birds, but prothonotaries really are golden yellow. Uh, so, Charlie, if someone were to try to put maybe a, a nesting box up in their backyard, um, what would be some things? I, I think when we talk about birds, all kind of birds, uh, maybe if a, a bird bath or some source of water nearby would be helpful. Are there other things that if someone were to put one up, they might to do to make it a little bit more successful? Uh, just having the right kind of box on a pole, preferably. Uh, a lot of it is, is being in the right habitat where, where the prothonotaries are. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not just everywhere. But, um, you know, we, we put, them on, put the boxes on a, on a pole and the right dimensions, the right nest hole size. And um, you mentioned bird baths, which are all, always attractive to birds, but if there's a natural source of water around, uh, I guess that's covered. And probably if the prothonotaries are there, water is not too far away, mm-hmm. usually. Um, so when they're nesting, on average, how many new birds are, are produced each year? Well, the clutches are like th- uh, three to six. Six would be really high. And how long is the incubation period? Uh, two weeks. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, when they're hatched? Uh, do both parents uh, – it's interesting to me in my limited knowledge of birds. is It seems like some birds are there to kind of nurture whatever, and other birds seem to kind of kick them out kind of early on. Uh, what about the prothonotaries? How, how do they care for their young? Well, the female incubates the, net, the eggs, but the male does help feed. Um, so so uh, it's different with, with – Many birds, pheasant species, for example, the female does pretty much everything, brooding, caring for the young. But prothonotaries, the males, do help feed, just don't help incubate. Got a couple callers on the line, some more pet questions for Dr. Major. Let's start uh, on the road. Ardell has called in. Good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, Yes, Um, I have back to the dog doing questions. I have a seven-month-old, mostly border collie, and she needs to be busy. And so I found these femur bones at a really good price. And, um, of course, I don't let them 
shoes, chicken bones, but um, my question is, well, my vet said that that's not a good idea, that it can break their teeth, and if it shatters, she has to cut it out. And so my question to you is, do you concur with that? What kind of bones uh, did you say you had? Well, um, my vet said it was a femur bone. It's about... Okay. Five inches long, and it has, yeah. it's about five inches Here, long, and it has a uh, joint bone at the end. Right. Here, here's the thing. A lot of dogs will take that bone and do quite well with it. A few dogs, though, will break. Usually it's one of the molars of how you'll get a slab fracture, and it can cause some uh, there are other things that you can use. And a lot of dogs have to have something that's fairly hard to chew on. They'll destroy anything else. And uh, some of the nylabone-type toys, uh, they make a rubber one that works well. You can you put say? peanut butter in it. Oh, how'd you uh, that's, That sort of thing. And uh, that may occupy the dog. But in answer to your question, a percentage of the dogs will have fractured teeth uh, from chewing on certain bones. And uh, certainly small bones can be a problem because they may swallow the small bones. But uh, I guess the debate is open. I know a lot of people that give their dogs bones. Okay. Um, could you repeat uh, so the I name of the... I didn't answer your question well. But, yes, Nyla, N-Y-L-A, Nyla bone. Uh, you can go online and look at uh, that type of uh, toys. One looks like kind of a, I uh, hate to say it, it's kind of round and it's got several indentations on it. And it actually has a place you can actually stuff uh, peanut butter or something like that in to give the dog. And they have to work at it to get out. So that may occupy them uh, as well. All right, Ardell, so thanks. So, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say um, my last question is. Um, I bought like 20 of them. Now I wonder what I'm going to do with them. <laughs> well, again, I agree with you. You said you had a border collie or border collies. Yeah. Uh, certainly yeah. those dogs have high energy and they need something to occupy them. They need plenty of exercise. Uh, and that is something they can become very bored and, and sometimes get into some uh, psychotic tendencies. So. I would continue on doing what you're doing, and the debate would be open as far as bones, but I think your veterinarian did give you good advice based on the fact that we do see fractures of teeth based on uh, gnawing on that big-type bone. All right, Ardell, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Before our next break, uh, a little more uh, conversation with our guest Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society. We're talking about profanitary wobblers this morning. Uh, and, Charlie, let's uh, talk about uh, migration. When, when does that take place for these birds? Well, they're, re they're returning to the U.S. like in March, and they mm -hmm. spend the next few months uh, nesting, breeding, uh, there's sort of an abrupt end to the breeding at the end of July. Hardly anything going on past that. Uh, then they, they work their way down through Central America, uh, down to most of them, Colombia, about 88% of them. Um, so there's, there's a also important stopover 
areas on the way down, like the Costa Rican Panama border and the Yucatan Peninsula. This is really an international species that needs international conservation. So where are they at this time of year on their journey? Uh, a lot of them are probably well on the way to Colombia or there or in the surrounding Latin American countries. And why is Colombia so important? The uh, Colombia is sort of the key to the whole thing in preserving the prothonotary warbler. Uh, they, 88% of the population converges, the wintering population converges on Colombia, and uh, the territory they use is like 20% of the territory they use for breeding in the U.S. So that, that means that an acre of forest destruction in Colombia is far more serious than an acre of forest destruction in the U.S. Not that it's important to preserve the breeding habitat and that we have work to do, but uh, it's especially crucial to protect the habitat in Colombia. Um, any thoughts on, on how well that's going? As the, Do the Colombian government and people in Colombia seem to be uh, on board, as it were? Uh, there seems to be an, a, an improving and increasing awareness. Uh, there are some protected areas. I'm sure there will be more. One, one of them is the El Silencio uh, natural area, uh, which uh, recently American Bird Conservancy helped to double in size. Uh, there's more work to be done. And is there a way to track, uh, do their, like uh, tracking devices uh, during their migration so they can, we can follow where they're going? Right, yes. We, we only know this because of uh, studies done by Eric Johnson and others of the Prothonotary work, Working Group uh, using geolocators, which is a tiny d tracking device. It's sort of like a harness, string harness. It's very lightweight, like 4% of the bird's weight. Uh, geolocators, you have to recapture the bird and uh, analyze the results, which basically is a measure of the daylight where you can calculate longitude and latitude. Uh, you, and you have to recapture the bird back on the breeding grounds and mist nets. There's also, also um, nanotags, a more recent development, which uses uh, VHF frequencies to track the birds where you don't have to cap capture them. And they've been able to piece together the puzzle about where they go and just how important Columbia is. This is Creature Comforts, and it's time for our last break of the hour. We've been talking with Charlie Pfeiffer about the profanitary warblers uh, and the Jackson Audubon Society. Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major here with pet questions and wildlife observations. You can join the conversation in our final segment by calling us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 you can always email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap things up after this. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hardfield, and our guest for the hour is Charlie Pfeiffer from the Jackson Audubon Society. 
If you missed any of today's program, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Creature Comforts. Got a couple callers on the line. Let's uh, begin again. Kathleen from Osaka has a question for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Kathleen. Uh, I think I opened Pandora's box, guys. I uh, got a scoop of dry grass, tied it in a knot because I thought my cat liked it because he was playing with some of the stuff that came in on my feet, and he was rolling in it, and I said, oh, how cute. Well, in there, there must have been a lizard, and he caught the lizard and has decided this is his favorite pastime. I've been finding them in the bathroom, on my bed, by the door. I don't know how they're getting in, maybe because it's cold, but he's having a field day with it. I'm going, oh, my goodness, how can I get rid of these little lizards all over the place, you know? Any thoughts on that one, Dr. Major? How How many lizards are we talking about? No, uh, he's he's catching them. I guess he's gotten at least oh. a half a dozen, a half a dozen this week, and he chews them, and then he leaves them for mom to pick up. Well, you know? <laughs> I, I understand. I I don't know exactly how you can break that habit. Uh, he's a hunter, and of course, cats. A lot of people uh, would say that cats torment uh, small creatures. You know, whether it's a lizard or a spider or whatever, they play with it, but. Uh, you know, are any of them the skinks, the um, that type lizard? You know what a skink no. is compared to? No, uh, I, I looked with them because uh, a few years back I had a female cat chew or eat one, and she died two days later. Right. Uh, the mm-hmm. immature stage of the skink, the as a blue tail, uh, on that at that point, uh, certainly can be toxic. It can cause some uh, uh, vestibular, inner ear type uh problems and can cause some other issues as well so I, I don't know how you deter this cat from getting those but he's going he's hunting outside and bringing them in is that correct no no they were, must have been coming in i had some okay. work done in the house and people coming in and okay. now apparently they found their way in but uh goodness gracious you know he never did well, that before right i guess Make a uh, lizard patrol and uh, sweep those out and get them get them out of there before he does uh, eat more or play with more. So I don't have the perfect answer for that, uh, but it's a pastime with him and he's enjoying himself. Libby, you had a thought. Yeah, Kathleen, did you recently move your plants in because the cold weather has started? That's a good way to bring lizards into the house. I've learned that through experience but uh, you might and you might check your house plants and see because that's a place that um, the lizards will want to hang out if they're in your house and you can move them out for their own good all right kathleen thanks for the call also you know hey at least the the cat is getting to the lizards that are in the house so he's helping you actually control the lizard population i think let's get uh, one final call Uh, okay sorry don't have time for that uh, but we do have time to uh, talk to Charlie. Uh, and uh, any, if someone wants to learn more about prothonotary warblers or any maybe sites online or anything, uh, areas that you would point them to to learn more? There's a vast amount of uh, things online. Uh, the Cornell Department of Ornithology site, for example, has lots of uh, detailed information about prothonotaries. All right. 
what about uh, folks interested in learning more about the uh, the Jackson Audubon Society? Do you have a website that you could give us? Uh, yes, I, I believe it's jacksonaudubonsociety.org. Okay. Uh, we do have a website, and uh, we invite people to check it out and get active with Jackson Audubon. Join National Audubon. We're part of National Audubon. And we mentioned earlier, if, if someone wants to, um, to try to put up a nesting box in, in their yard or whatever, um, where would they go to try to find information about the, the uh, dimensions and, and the way to put up a, a one that will be successful? Uh, many, many plans online, easily Googleable. Uh, bottom tends to be like five by five at the base, six inches high. A one and a quarter or one and a eighth, one and an eighth inch hole. But they all uh, tend to kind of congregate around that kind of a dimension. There's many, many plans on site. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by our listeners. If you want to hear today's show or previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash creaturecomforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Charlie Pfeiffer, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.